I'm Jonathan Goldson, Director of Ethical Imperatives and author of Grappling with the Gray, an ethical handbook for personal success and business prosperity. And today we're going to talk about the challenge of being good versus being successful, of trying to find our moral compass, of balancing our responsibility towards ourselves with a responsibility towards others. I'm going to incorporate some of the ideas I've talked about in my speeches and my keynotes and my TEDx talk. And we're going to really try to bring out an understanding of what we can do to contribute to a more successful world that we get to live in. Stay tuned. Welcome back to part two of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. I'm here with my guest, Rabbi Jonathan Goldson, and uh, we are talking about grappling with the gray, the gray areas between morality and ethics and righteousness and justification and all those things that are part of the human struggle. Now, in the first half, we were we're really finding out a little bit about Rabbi Jonathan and, and how he has come to be who he is. Uh, we got to the fact that he had grown up where he grew up in, in California, uh, a little bit about his parents and who they were and his sort of journey into uh, English literature uh, long before he was ever a rabbi, long before he got into that journey. Now take us into the next part of that journey for you. How did that happen? Well, the, the, the wonderful thing about English literature is the, the beauty of language and, and the <clears throat> power of story and, and exposure to new ideas. And the, and the downside is, what are you going to do when you graduate? <laughs> it's a great thing to study as long as you want unemployment. Yeah, well, you know, these <laughs> days you can't afford to go to college and just mess around. But back then, uh, that, was, yeah. that was pretty much normal. But anyway, I graduated. And I did the only thing that seemed to make any kind of reasonable sense. I put on a backpack and started hitchhiking across country. And did that for about half a year. And well, you said at that time, the American dollar was really high. And it was a ton of Americans traveling, right? Well, that, that was that was in the next half. That was after I crossed the pond and, and came to and went to Europe, backpacked through Europe for half a year. And um, oh, so and you went, I didn't understand that. So yeah. you backpacked in the US first. I hitchhiked, hitchhiked through it to the United States. Oh, okay. And then you went to Europe. And then I went to Europe. I see. Yeah. Uh, so when I when, you know, when it got cold in Europe, I headed south for Israel. Because was that a plan? Uh, yeah. You... I mean, the plan was to go around the world. Right. And certainly Israel was a place I wanted to visit. Um, I, I had had a little bit of exposure to um, to to Judaism, not in any kind of a deep way in more of a inspirational sense. And I wanted to, I wanted to investigate that. But my plan was really to just to have some routine for a while. I mean, living out of a backpack for a year, it gets exhausting. Sure. You're, you're looking for a new place to sleep every night and, and never know where you're gonna be from day to day and trying to live on a shoestring, you know, 10, 10, $15 a day. So my plan was to have the classic Israel experience and volunteer in a kibbutz. Mm -hmm. Well, that was where the dollar became relevant uh, because there were, I think they said eight or 9 million Americans in Europe that summer. And when it got cold- <laughs> Europe should have built a wall. To yeah. <laughs> they headed south. And when I showed up at the kibbutz placement office, something that nobody said they'd ever experienced in memory, you couldn't find a place on a kibbutz. 
Mm. People were camped out like they wanted to to buy uh, tickets to a Rolling Stones concert, you know, and signs up saying, come back next year. It was the beginning of it's late November, beginning of December. I couldn't afford to just hang out and I, and I needed that routine to sort of recalibrate right. my mind. So I had heard once that there was something called yeshiva, which <laughs> is a place where you could go and you could study Judaism. Mm. And in fact, you didn't even necessarily have to pay tuition. <laughs> which was uh, perhaps more compelling than Even, the actual. <laughs> the, the, now we're going for the Jewish deal. Okay. Listen, you know, uh, so, uh, so I, I managed to find my, my way to, to, to a yeshiva. And um, the first day, and there's a story I tell in my TED talk, yeah. the, the first day I, I, they led me into a room for lecture on Jewish philosophy. And I, and I sat down in the far back corner of the room and, and the whole room filled up around me and, and the instructor walked in and everyone stood up and I looked for a way out. Right. Because he wasn't just a rabbi, he was Hasidic. The big hat and the long coat and the scraggly beard and the side locks and the thick glasses. And I thought, I know what's coming. He's gonna tell us we're all gonna burn in hell. He's gonna have a thick Yiddish accent and I gotta get out of here. Right. But I couldn't, I was trapped in the back corner of the room. I would have had to climb over a dozen people and make a spectacle of myself. So I, I settled back, I said, I can survive anything for an hour. Mm -hmm. And he starts to talk. And he has an accent, but it's not Yiddish, it's New England. <laughs> and he sounds like a professor for Johns Hopkins University, which I later found out he was. And he, was, he just shattered my stereotypes. How is it possible that somebody who looks like this sounds like that? Yes. And fortunately, I had developed, however I did, the authenticity and the intellectual integrity to say, I need to give this guy a chance. I need to consider. I figured it was going to take me a good couple of weeks to figure out why he was wrong and how I could punch holes in all of his, his theories. Right. And yet, and there were, there were a couple of buddies that we made, we became friendly in there. One, one sat on the right, one sat on his left, and I sat at the end of the end of the table and we just peppered him. I mean, we, we, and then we'd group up after class and we'd rehash everything that happened and we'd plan our attack for the next class. And you know, we all ended up to our observant Jews. <laughs> because after a while we just ran out of excuses right uh, we couldn't we couldn't refute the logic and the reason and the arguments mm -hmm. and at that point you either decide okay i just don't want to deal with it i'm going to walk away or you say i've got to i've got to recalibrate my my whole world view and so I ended up uh, staying in Israel for nine years, uh, met my wife there, had our first two children, became an Orthodox rabbi. And um, from there, I embarked on a 23-year career teaching high school. But uh, since retiring from teaching, what I want to do is take the universal lessons of Torah Judaism and apply them to the professional world. And that's really how I came up with ethics, because... I found that was the single soundbite mm -hmm. that underlies everything that I had been studying for decades by that point, is how to live a life that is elevated, that's refined, that has purpose, that's defined by service, 
and that calls me to aspire to become the best version of myself. And by doing so, make the world I live in the best world it can be. When you, you know, because you, you studied English literature, you, you know, you ended up at yeshiva, you, you studied with rabbis, um, and then you got into the, 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 really into the path of ethics, and as you said, bringing that to the secular world, in, particularly in the context of business. When you look at that, do you see a distinction between um, what is there in the rabbinical studies versus, say, Greeks, you know, that kind of, you know, because, like, is it different for you? Or is it the same? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially we're, we're having this conversation a week out from Hanukkah. Right. And, and Hanukkah is all about the clash between Jewish philosophy and Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that there's, there's one Greek I like. That's Socrates. Mm -hmm. And what's he best known for? Right? The unexamined life is not worth living. Yes. And what did he get for teaching that? Execution. Execution. <laughs> <laughs> Corrupting the youth Wild of Athens. Wild disagreement. <laughs> Corrupting the youth of Athens by, by committing the unpardonable crime of trying to get them to think. Right. And challenging the status quo and challenging the conventions. You know, Greece was the highest secular culture in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. They were still secular. Yes. And all of their aesthetics and all of their elegance and all of their uh, sophistry, you know, what, what they brought to the world was extraordinary. Yes. And yet, if, if children were born with deformities, they took them out in the field and left them to die. Yep. You know, this, this is not what you would call what we would call a moral culture. No. Right. It was a culture. Why, why they, the Olympics, right? Why did they perform the Olympics in, in the nude? Because they celebrated the, the human body, the human form. Yes. You know, for all of their sophistication, which is not a word that's always a compliment, um, there was a, a profound externality to, mm -hmm. their, to their, their way of looking at the world. And that's why you ended up with a clash at first when, when Alexander's army occupied Israel. At first, things were pretty good. Right. The Greeks and the Jews had a, had a mutual respect because they yes. were unlike any other peoples in the world. Right. But it didn't last that long because Judaism sub, form serves substance, whereas Greek value, Greece valued external substance, ex external form over substance. Right. And eventually that just became irreconcilable. Mm. It's it's. I mean, you bring up so much there that I, I want to unpack, um, because again, this we hold again history, right? We hold things in certain esteem, and then we don't bother to actually look at what was under the surface of it. You know, um, you know uh, whether it was any great leader, I mean, of any, of any nation. I mean, we can look at the, the Pol Pots and the Idi Amin's are in roast, recent history uh, and say, oh, you know what crazy people they were and how bad they were. Um, and 
there are people who are in history, in our history books that we hold in esteem who would be in their day, the Idi Amin's and the Pol Pot's of their day. Um, and, and yet we hold a lot of those people as these uh, moral fiber people that often they won't. So I really appreciate that you are bringing that up and, and having us examine these falsities, I, I would say falsities of who people really are versus um, who they become in our, in our dry cleaned version of history. But I want to go to, I think, which is the most important piece of where we have to really jump off in a big way, which is, I know you've done a lot of work in this, and I know you've laid it out. So I want to go to ethics, morals and righteousness, um, how we mix them up. And, and I know that you have a very clear definition of how they are different. So, you know, because you are, quote, a righteous Jew. You and I, I'm certain, I know for sure I have, have known many, quote, righteous Jews who definitely lack some morals and ethics, right? So um, there's, a, uh, there's a show on TV now that everybody raves about on Netflix. I can't remember what it is. And um, Tom Hardy plays an Orthodox Jew and he's, you know, and he's a gangster, right? And, you know, I don't think those things are separate. But I think that thinking one is separate is it. so walk us through your definition and help people to understand that. Yeah, so this, this is really my formulation. If you go to the actual etymology of the of the words, yes. um, moral and ethic come from the same source. Yes. One comes from the Greek, one comes from the Latin. Um, but in, in terms of the actual word origins, they're they're identical. Yes. Um, so what, what I've done is taken morals in the terms of moralizing yes and you know certainly from my perspective um i believe that god handed down the tablets and the law to moses at sinai mm -hmm. and it's binding mm -hmm. so for me to engage in in moral theory um is, is a matter of understanding the law, not challenging the law, not proving the law. At the same time, I live as a member of a world where lots of different people have lots of different ideas about truth, mm -hmm. about righteousness, about values. And certainly in the Western world in the last 20, 30 years, things have changed dramatically. Yep about what's considered good, what's considered righteous, what's considered moral. Yeah. So I have to accommodate the reality of the world I live in. Mm -hmm. And that's where my formulation of the distinction between ethics and morals comes in. Morals is handed down to us from a higher authority. Yes. So whatever we believe that higher authority is, that is our moral structure. Ideally, we should have one. Because without one, it all becomes a matter of personal inclination. Um, and very often that's driven by ego and desire and social pressure. Okay, so let me just push back a minute yeah. before we go to the next part of this, which is then the, the uh, suggestion might come up that 
So then you're saying that the atheist who does not believe in a higher power, therefore does not have morals. There, you know, the, the sages tell us that there's wisdom in the secular world, but there is not spiritual truth in the secular world. Okay. And if I, if I can digress, because I, I just, I've always been tickled by this since I heard it the first time in college. Uh, imagine you're at a baseball game, you mm -hmm. know what baseball is, um, and you, uh, you ask the fellow next to you, you've got you've to meet somebody. So you ask the fellow next to you what time it is. And he says five to one. But he was so intent on the game, he thought you asked him the score, mm. which is five to one. Right. But it actually is 12.55. Mm -hmm. Do you know what time it is? Well, I, if it is 12.55, uh, I guess I do, yeah. Well, you do, but how do you know it? In other words, you didn't get through you didn't get to it through the proper channels mm -hmm. of, of knowledge acquisition. Okay. So it's certainly possible, you know, this, this is a debate that uh, you may, if you're familiar with, with Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, they, uh, you know, they're famous for, for going after this stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think Sam Harris is somebody who, is, you know, he's incredibly bright and, and I think he's very well-intentioned. And I think he has happened upon certain truisms but that he got there how did he get there if, if you get to the truth by accident you're still at the truth yes but there's there's something missing and, and and when you when you extrapolate when you apply you can end up going off off course because you haven't arrived at the conclusion by the proper path or by the authentic path. So I, I certainly would not suggest that um, there's only one, you know, one kind of person who is capable of being moral, mm -hmm. but rather the, the mechanism through which morality works is one of acknowledging a higher authority and a higher system of values. That being said, again, we live in a society where we are all coming from different places and we yes. have to try to get along and work together and find common ground. And I think that's where ethics is critical. I think it's a bigger challenge now than it used to be because we have fewer common moral or ethical axioms than we used to. Mm -hmm. And though that's part of why we're more divided and why we're more contentious and why there's more partisanship and acrimony and gridlock. But the ideal would be for us to define ethical principles that we can all agree on. You know, who's, who's really done a lot of good work with this is Jonathan Haidt. Yes. Um, and, and his formula is one that I think is extremely useful in trying to bring people together Mm -hmm. even if, I don't know how well it's working at the moment, but uh, I, I think there's a lot of hope in that direction. Um, but we're still, I, I'm sorry, but I'm still pushing up against this, this idea, which I know there would be pushback from uh, a listener or viewer, which is even the term 
through the right procedure, through the right mechanism, implies that spirituality or the religious faith is right. And the argument on the other side of that could be very clearly, take a look at war and you'll find religion. So, you know, so you're talking about a moral ground can only be found through a spiritual path. And remember, I'm a spiritual guy, so I, but I'm pushing back here because if, if the moral ground can only be found through the spiritual path, then we also have to go, well, hold on a second. The, the religious people are the ones who went to war. They started the crusades of the Christian faith. They were the, the Muslims who went in and did all the things they did. You know, Jews are pretty, da pretty dangerous right now in the Middle East. I mean, you know, there's a lot of war associated to a religious body, whatever that religious body might be. So that's where the pushback is around this morality coming through the right mechanism, keyword, um, of, of a religion. So can you help us out a little more on that one? Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, there are any number of illustrations we could call. You know, a car, an automobile, is not a is not a tool of violence, and yet it can be turned into one very easily. Yes. Right. Um, religion is a means of imposing structure on society. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And part of you know, there's we all have to have some authority in our lives. Yes. Right? If, if you live in a society where you're free to drive on either side of the road, which there actually are some places that are kind of like that. Um, I've been in them. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not a formula for, for safety and, no. uh, and well-being. Uh, human beings can mess up anything. Well, I think, I think your argument is, is a good argument in that the, the, a knife can, be, can feed your friend, it can also kill your friend. It has a neutrality to it. The vehicle can be used to transport you from point A to point B and maybe give somebody a ride who needs a ride. But it could also be used for mowing down people as a weapon. All that is still true. Um, and I don't disagree with any of that. And I've met wonderful, beautiful, magnificent, highly moral, highly ethical, kind, generous, spiritual people. I've also met highly moral, ethical, kind, caring, loving people who are atheists. Right. So this, this, the, the sticking point that I'm trying to understand and help us to sort of dance in the gray, grapple with the gray here is okay, but are you exclusively saying in your argument that that the right way to a morality is through religion? What I'm saying is that without an absolute standard of truth, of right and wrong, mm -hmm. then our choices become functions of our own human imperfections. Okay. And that we might get it right. We yes. might get it right as individuals. Mm -hmm. We might get it right as a society. Mm -hmm. But we also might get it wrong. I mean, if you look at, I mean, um, classical philosophy 
has been trying for ages, literally, to define good without yes. God. And it has not succeeded. Mm -hmm. There are any number of models that are useful, but you take something that's that's sort of the, the most um, simple to understand is utilitarianism. Yes. Which is that which provides the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people is good. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, it's it makes sense on some level. It's, it's simple to understand. But okay, what is benefit? Mm -hmm. And how do you, you've now said, you've now defined morality or good by that which benefits a majority. Well, you know, when the framers of the United States set up the constitution, one of their concerns was to protect people from the tyranny of the majority. Yes. So according, if you take utilitarianism to its ultimate extreme, yep. well, if there are three of us in the room and two of us decide we would enjoy torturing the third, not only are we permitted to, it's utilitarian. We're obligated to. Yes. But so, again, this, but I'm, I'm not suggesting anything different than what you've said. I'm just challenging the idea that there's no way to get there without God. So, um, and I'm really pushing back on that one because I know for sure, um, as you said, there, you know, anything has a, you know, you're using a negative example of utilitarianism, but I can also use the same example of, of a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim or a whatever faith it might be doing exactly the same. You could say, well, you know, this is the code. Okay, cool. Well, how come Christians are, are torturing people? How come Christians are um, pro-life and, uh, and at the same time, uh, uh, pro-life, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, execution, right? Oh, you know, punishment, yeah. so, you know, pu corporal punishment. Thank you. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. It, it falls through the cracks for me when it's an argument that you can definitely put forward around utilitarianism and you can put it around uh, a non-moral, non-religious moral code, but you have to apply that same code then to religion and it fall and it falls through the cracks right there too. Well, you know, again, uh, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson debated this very point for I think seven hours. Um, so you know, so you're in Sam Harris's one. camp, and I'm in Jordan Peterson's camp. Uh, but the starting point is really farther back. Yes, and it's one that people don't really like to talk about because you can't go anywhere from there. Which is, what is the truth? Mm -hmm. If God revealed his will to the world, then everything unfolds. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect because we're still yeah. human beings. Yeah. We still have egos. We still have drives. We still have self-interest. We still have our shortcomings. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make mistakes. Right. And in some cases, they're going to be really bad mistakes. Mm -hmm. Having a, a, a true religious structure or rubric or tradition does not guarantee virtue it is a it is a formula for virtue mm -hmm. if we follow it and the history of mankind even the history of the jewish people i mean we we've we've been we've been failing spectacularly mm -hmm. for 3300 years yeah 
punctuated by moments of tremendous success. Yeah. And this is the lesson of, of Jewish history is that you can have a perfect system and you can still fail right. if you don't live up to the ideals and the demands of the system. Is the system true? Is it not true? I don't know if we're going to resolve that between us today. Um, you know, when, 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 I, when I got to, uh, to seminary, that was the only question that really interested me. Mm. If you can prove to me this is true, you got me. Right. Don't tell me it's beautiful. Don't tell me tradition. Don't tell me Jewish continuity. Don't tell me wonderful lifestyle. Either it's real or it's, or it's made up. Right. If it's real, I'm in. If it's made up, I'm out of here. And I was convinced. Sure. Now, and I understand that not everybody is convinced. Yeah. And I mean, so again, um, because this is the great gray area is the subjectivity of anything. It doesn't matter what talking about religion, about anything is the subjectivity and, and, and the ability to develop some level or to develop oneself enough to have some level, although nobody is fully objective in a subjective reality, but to develop some level of objectivity around something. So, you know, for instance, let's talk about just to stay with this for a minute before we move on. Uh, let's take, for instance, Buddhists who don't believe in God. There is no God as such. Um, I would say some of the most moral and ethical people I've ever met were Buddhists. Uh, I spent time with Buddhist monks and lived with Buddhist monks. Um, far more, far less inclined to be judgmental, far less, the ones I knew, uh, less inclined to be judgmental, less inclined to make you wrong if you weren't following their rules, um, tons of forgiveness, all of those things. One might say they have a very strong moral code. They're not atheists. They have a faith, but it's not God-based, and there's no um, God handing down you know, the, the, the message. So when we come up against someone like that, is that, does that now change out of God into a spiritual code? Um, certainly there is much to be admired, um, in that philosophy. Sure. In my understanding is that there is an emphasis in Buddhist philosophy on um, withdrawing from engagement in the physical world mm -hmm. uh, to a large degree. Yes. Um, which is one way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, most of the world, I mean, even, even Judaism is, this is not a, this is not an ideal that is particularly uh, essential to Judaism, except for a very small minority of, of scholars who uh, you know, isolate themselves and focus on, on, on spiritual study. But for the majority, no. uh, we are meant to engage the physical. And the more you engage the physical, the more 
conflict you're going to have with the spiritual. Mm -hmm. That's inevitable. Yeah. Well, as one of my Buddhist teachers said, it is easy to be a holy man on top of the mountain. Yeah, exactly. Now you must go into the marketplace where they will steal your money and step on your toes. Yeah. And will you remain a Buddhist? Yeah. Will you remain a spiritual person? Not even a Buddhist, but a spiritual person who will care for the care for a fellow human. Because the sep the the central philosophy um, is in Buddhism is to be in the world of service. So if you're going to operate in the world, it's of service. It's not much different than what I studied in, in my Judaic studies and in my um, uh, Coptic Christianity studies. Um, you know, they all have these beautiful common themes. And that for me is what's interesting about it is that when you pull all the religions together, the central themes are pretty identical. The dogma is where it gets apart. And right, then the right. dogma becomes where it becomes, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. And we've now left ethics, we've left morality, and we've come to righteousness and judgment based on my code versus your code or your code versus my code or our code versus their code. Of course, what's really extraordinary about Judaism is that Judaism does not teach one way for all people. No. We teach one God. Yes. And there are, there are basic rules of human morality. Don't murder, yes. don't steal, those types of things. But other than that, which is really just a baseline of basic morality or decency, as you say it, um, other than that, Christians can worship Christian God. Buddhists can worship the, 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 the pantheon or the, the, the pantheistic uh, view mm -hmm. of, of the world. And, and Muslims can, can worship uh, the way they do. And everyone, every human being is created in the image of God and has the opportunity to earn eternal reward by being righteous, which mm -hmm. is something you don't find among many other religions, which tend to preach exclusivity. There's one right way to, uh, to be a, a good person. Um, you know, the Nachmanides has this, this ringing phrase that the worst thing, the, the worst thing, not quite, but the greatest failing, let's say, of a, of a Torah observant Jew is to be a is to be a scoundrel with Torah license, which comes back to really uh, what I hope we'll get back into is is the whole ethical structure. You know, is to be a legalistic Jew. I'm following all. I'm following, and and historically, it's fascinating because the Second Temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed in, in seventy, and the sages later observed what was wrong with Jewish society that they brought destruction upon themselves. One of the key elements they said is that the Jews were upholding the letter of the law. Now that doesn't sound so bad, mm -hmm. but they were using the letter of the law to subvert the spirit of the law. Oh, see right there. That's the piece we've got to that, that, that's where I want to come back into part three. So the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, because now we move away from this rigor of a, of a doctrine, but rather into the humanity, which I think is where we, we really need to go uh, in our exploration as we continue on. 
This is a fabulous conversation. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Goldson. Uh, this is a delicious conversation that I encourage you to go back and maybe re-listen as you're tuning in. Re-listen, maybe take some notes and think about it. And of course, you can join in the conversation because we do have groups on Facebook and LinkedIn under the Curiosity Bites label. You can look for them there. But think about this. Think about this idea of morals and ethics and how you uh, maybe uh, wrestle with those. Where, what is the gray and, and is there a gray uh, uh, around certain things? And then looking at this um, cleverness of, of, of wrestling with verses, as, as, as Rabbi was just saying before, this idea of following the letter of versus the spirit of and we want, we're going to come to that in our next part as we discover what is the spirit of the law whether that's the spiritual laws of, of a religion or the laws of a country um, by which we hold things together and we'll be back at the next part we look forward to seeing you in part three my name is dove baron you can find out more about me at dovebaron.com Till next time Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. <laughs>